0: This is Explicit Content. There is talk of murder. There is trigger warnings for child death. And so please be aware, if you continue on to this podcast, onto this episode, it is a true crime episode. Hi, this is Katrina. And this is Sydney. And this is Murder of death. So today... We are doing a re record of Todd Colehep because we were having technical difficulties.
1: <laughs> so, yep. if anybody out there wants to like edit our podcast for free, we're down. You have a job. Yep, you have a job. I mean, it
0: doesn't pay, but nope. you have a job. Not one else, because we also <laughs> have no pay, but, you know. <laughs> All right, so let's get started. So, okay, Todd Colehep, he was born Todd Christopher Sanson in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, on March 7th, 1971. His parents were Regina and William, and they were divorced when he was two. Regina got custody, but she remarried soon um, to a man named Carl Holhepp. He had two children of his own, but adopted the five-year-old Todd. Todd was a really smart kid, but by nature, he was also difficult. He was angry, aggressive, rebellious. And he clashed a lot with his stepfather. Which, there's evidence of animal cruelty to animals and hostility to other children, but um, I didn't find really anything on that. Just the note that there was evidence of this. At the age of nine, he was sent to a state mental health facility for three and a half months for anger management. At nine.
1: Like. I mean not judging mama I don't I mean like I don't feel like that's the first step you take maybe he was just so out of control she couldn't do anything but like you know I feel like certain things have to start somewhat at home like you have to try this and then see a therapist and then this and then if that doesn't work okay like I don't know what to do but but so young I know and like we've talked about it before on here that you
0: know the nature versus nurture so much of the time not every time because not every time but so much of the time something happens to cause that and as a teacher and I can say this as a teacher there's always a reason behind the behavior always
1: and I feel like sometimes and I'm not a gentle parent um but I do feel like I mean I guess I am I am not the 90s parent that I wish to be but I'm not all gentle parenting but I mean like sometimes we have to realize like my oldest child is eight like you're mad okay why are you mad tell me about it you need do you need to go outside do you need to go outside so you could just scream like what happened like let's talk about it you can tell me why you're mad.
0: well and that's like that's something that I see a lot on my TikTok because my algorithm is like all moms
1: um
0: (laughs) but on my TikTok like a lot of us Kind of like millennial parents, mm-hmm. we're like trying to help our children learn how to express their emotions, feel their emotions in a healthy way, so that they can deal with their emotions. Because yeah. I like I love my mom, and my mom was an amazing mother to me growing up, but my mom did not did not teach me how to regulate my emotions because she also didn't know how to regulate her emotions. Okay, I think- we had that that Southern thing of hide your crazy, you know, like don't let nobody know you're mad. Don't let nobody know you're sad. Like hide it all the way. Shove it deep down.
1: I don't know that my mom and me really even ever had conversations like that because I mean, you remember like, even though my mom, you know, she had some dark moments that I didn't know about, but to everyone else, including her children, she was always like a sunshine twin. Like she loved everybody and you know, everything could be solved with just, Oh, it's okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, so we never had those types of discussions because that's not how she handled herself. So, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything about her parenting. She's a wonderful mom. We have a wonderful relationship. I just, I mean, I need, I know when I'm angry, it comes out in a lot of ways. It's not always yelling. Sometimes it's crying. it it comes out in a lot of ways so I want my kid to know like well you're not going to throw a fit on me but you can talk to me about it and we can scream it out and whatever Mm. what is going to make you feel better yeah
0: Yeah. and I like I tell LJ a lot of times when he gets mad he starts yelling I'll be like why are you yelling like tell me why you're yelling you know and like if he gets in trouble and he wants to cry I'm like baby you can cry all you want but you need to go to your room to cry because when he cries it is the. So I'm like, okay, I love you, and you are allowed to have your emotions, but you are not going to have those emotions right here in my face. Right, if you're going
1: to scream. You can go to Especially scream, in your
0: room. scream if,
1: your window panes out. But like, if you're having these emotions because you're mad about the consequences of your own actions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, which is what I deal with a lot with my children.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, same. Because, oh god siblings fight so much and it's constantly like well he punched you in the face because you pulled his hair or you you know (laughs) smacked him like okay we digress because we got very off topic Um, let's have a little psychiatric session for you folks i know we you know we try we try to be good (laughs) parents and we try we try to learn from our parents because our parents were good parents but also our parents were trying to break their own cycles their, you know, like my mom came from a very abusive family, you know, she was abused as a child. So her focus was on breaking that cycle, you know, not spinning into that cycle of abuse because her parents were also abused. So her focus was on that. My focus is, you know, I, I was not physically abused as a child. Not that I was mentally abused either, but like I said, it was a, you don't talk about it. You push it away, mm-hmm. you push it down. You don't talk about it because eventually it'll go away, which is super unhealthy. And that's how I learned to cope for a it very long time.
1: Really just kind of boils down to what we have probably mentioned. I know we've mentioned on Petty People, which we haven't had a lot of episodes of, but we have definitely mentioned it on here before. Um, our Generation has kind of brought forward into, like, it's not, it's okay to talk about your mental health, Mm -hmm. where our parents, it just wasn't acceptable to talk about those things. No, like, you didn't
0: tell people you were talking to a therapist. Like, nobody knew Yeah. And now it's just common practice. Like, most people talk to a therapist. Yeah. All right, so back to Todd. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, okay, so he was in a state mental health facility for three and a half months at nine. Like I said, like you said, no judgment to the parents. I don't know what was going on. He wasn't my kid, but um, he, he later says that he was shuffled back and forth between his mother and his grandparents for a number of years. But his grandparents did not want children and they definitely didn't want a grandchild with them. They were, he said that they were extremely abusive. He claimed to be drug out of bed on a number of occasions by his hair and tied to a tree and beat. He um, talked about being beat with a large leather belt, a riding crop. One time his grandfather stuck him with a cattle prod. Um, So after threatening suicide, if he was not allowed to go live with his birth father, his mother was desperate because her and her new husband were on the rocks. She was trying to save her marriage, so she sent him to go live with her dad. His dad. It didn't take long, though, for Todd to get tired of her, his dad, too. Because his dad, first off, hadn't been a father for um, who knows how many years. Probably, he was probably in his teenage years, maybe 12, 13, 14. Um, so, he had not been a father, not been around, obviously. But um, he was always out. He was off with girlfriends. He didn't pay any attention. And so Todd tried to go back home to his mom, but she always had excuses.
1: Which which is just, like, not an excuse to become a serial killer, but just, just, like, breaks my heart.
0: Well, and it also, like, yeah, that's it. Like, you know, I've heard on multiple podcasts, like, you can feel sorry for the child, you know, and mm-hmm. not feel sorry for the monster it became. So, like, mm-hmm. as a mother... The thought of telling my child, no, you can't come back home with me. I like, I don't, I don't understand that. But also Todd's not my son. Right. So my kids are not, are not like that. So no, no judgment back or forth, but that it hurts my heart as a mom. that, that that that's yeah. a relationship. But anyway, Todd stayed with his dad. Mm-hmm. Boy, did it get worse. At 15 years old. He took his father's 22 caliber handgun and went over to his 14 year old neighbor's house, where she was home alone babysitting her brother and her sister. Todd forced her to walk with him back to his house. Up in his room, he duct taped her mouth shut and bound her hands behind her back, and then he raped her. She had refused his advances four other times, so he decided, "I'm going to force you." Now. After the rape, he, apparent he you know, according to the story, was, you know, pacing back and forth, um, didn't know what to do. He was like, I don't want to kill her, but I don't want her to go tell on me. So she came up with a story of, hey, let's just tell them that I was helping you look for your dog, and we will um, stick to that story. I was helping you look for your dog. That's all that matters. So he was like, okay, let's do that. Let's use that. So, um, she, he let her go, but before she got home, her little brother, who was five years old, couldn't find his sister, so he called 911. So, when she got home, the cops were already there, and at first, you know, out of, out of fear of retaliation or consequences, she lied to the cops and was like, I was just trying to help him find his dog. But, like, she crumbled. Like, the first question that they asked, she just crumbled. She's sobbing. She's telling the story. And she is, um, she's just a mess about it. So, um, she also mentioned, um, no. The police go to question Todd. And initially when they arrived, Todd had one of his dad's rifles pointing at the ceiling. So, he tried to stick with the dog story. And, um, you know, he tried to be like, "Yeah, she was helping me look for my dog." No, I did threaten to kill her family and her younger siblings if she said anything, but I didn't rape her. Okay, which makes no sense to me. yeah, Wait. I know that I'm like that's that's you know, I've had people help me look for my dog. like one time, my Frenchie before our backyard was fenced in, um went for a little walkabout, and um she uh, ended up in puppy jail. And, uh, i had i had all kinds of people helping me trying to find her because i thought you know maybe she's just roaming roaming the block you know because it's a small block
1: her because she's a frenchie i mean
0: she is yeah and that uh, i was terrified of um i didn't threaten to kill any of them you know right. helping me so i don't know but anyway um but when he finally broke down and you know admitted it he was asked why he did what he did he replied he wasn't sure It might have just been rebellion because his dad was out of town. But later, he said he just wanted to talk to her to convince her to date him. But it just got out of hand. I know. I know. But I I have lots of problems with the legal system. And to say this without causing any issues, it is not set up for success. It is not set up to do its goal of rehabilitating people most of the time. So this is the problem. And I I understand why it happened because rape is one of the most horrible things on the planet to ever happen to someone. But he was charged as an adult. He was 15. He was charged an adult with kidnapping, sexual assault committing a dangerous crime against a child. He pled guilty to kidnapping in exchange for the other charges being dropped. He was sentenced to 15 years in an adult prison and was a registered sex offender. I I understand the reason that he was charged with that. I do because I've watched enough Law & Order, SVU, Criminal Minds, (laughs) You know, I understand, but it's also like putting a 15-year-old in a prison with full-grown men who some of them have committed 10 times the amount of crimes, how and, is that going to help them? I mean,
1: how too, if you feel like this is like an act, act of sexual deviance or whatever you want to say, I don't feel like he's going to be secluded from that or hearing about things like that in an adult prison system where there are lots of sex offenders rapists and I'm not saying that they all go in there and brag but probably some of them do and then when you're 15 and you're looking at this 30 year old you're like oh yeah he's cool and he did it so
0: yeah exactly so I don't know it just I just feel like that was, I don't know. It was, you know, I understand he did a horrible thing. He deserved 1000% of his consequences, but it was also like he's a 15 year old that you're putting in the prison system with, you know, you say your goal is to rehabilitate so that they can become functioning members of society and not repeat these things. But how is that going to occur? I don't know. It, it happened. It's in the past. Me bitching about it's not going to change it, so whatever. While in prison, he received his degree in in computer science. He was released 14 years after 14 years and moved to Spartanburg near his mother. He got a job as a graphic designer until November 2003. Todd actually ended up with his real estate license, and things seemed to be on the up and up. His friends said that he was a great boss. He was dedicated to his real estate, he was really focused, and he treated his clients really well. So, we're going to switch gears, and we're going to talk about some other people. Don't worry, Scott comes back. Or not Scott, sorry, I just read Scott, Todd comes back. Scott Ponders was born to William Ponder and Beverly Elaine Rogers Guy. He owned Superbike Motorsports Suzuki, and he was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints of Portland Springs. Now, that's a mouthful. He was, the, he was in the F.S. presidency, which I don't know what that means, but he was. Um, and he was married to Melissa Player Ponder, and they were expecting a child. Now, Beverly Guy, Scott's mother, was a native of Spartanburg, and she was the daughter of Hardy Lewis and Riola Amanda Scrubs Rogers. She was also a member of the Church of, of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints of Boiling Springs, where she was the secretary of the Relief Society. She was married to Terry Allen Guy, and her only child was Scott Ponders. January of 2001, when Scott Ponders, a passionate motorcycle enthusiast, opened a motorcycle and power sports dealership in Super called Superbike Motorsports in his native South Carolina. Scott's best friend Brian, who shared his enthusiasm for all things two-wheeled, joined Scott at SBKMS, which is the dealership, as a shop. Service manager. Scott's mom liked to spend time there. She would run errands and just kind of, you know, hang out with with the guys because she, you know, she enjoyed hanging out with her son. Chris was one of the shop's most recent hires and um, he had been wrenching there for a short time. So I'm assuming wrenching there was like working on the bikes. From the start, this dealership was a great success. Scott used the internet to, um, which was, you know, an innovative way to sell motorcycles in the early 2000s because. Remember, this was the early 2000s and not 2022, where you literally can buy a car from an online vending machine. (laughs) Um, And SBKMS saw more than $1 million in sales in the first year. Building on that success, Scott invested further in the business. He remodeled. He expanded. And um, I mean, he just had a really successful business. He was surrounded by loving friends loving family, and was happily married to the woman he loved, which he met at a motorcycle show. And like I said, his wife, Melissa, was pregnant with their first child. So SBKMS became somewhat of a hub for local bike enthusiasts. It was kind of business as usual when a friend of SBKMS, Noel Lee, called the shop on a Thursday morning to ask if he could drop by and hang out for a while. When Noel arrived at the dealership less than 10 minutes later, he walked into a disturbing scene. Scott and Brian were lying in a pool of blood in the dealership's parking lot, near the entrance to the building. Noel initially thought the two were pranking him, telling them to get up, nudging, nudging Brian with his foot. So first off, I feel bad for, for Noel Lee, because... I can totally imagine myself in this situation being like, y'all not funny. Like, this isn't funny. Quit. You yeah. Know? Because, absolutely. I, mean, just, I mean, why not? Like, especially dudes, they play these kind of jokes. You know, they, you know, they do this to each other. Of course, at first, he's going to be like, I just called you guys. You knew I was coming. Like, this is silly. Mm-hmm. But he realized that it was not a joke. When he entered the dealership to call 911, he found two more bodies. Beverly, Scott's mother, was on the floor near the bathroom, and Chris was slumped over a bike that he had been working on. The crime scene was classified as mass murder because nothing was taken, even though there was a a briefcase with thousands of dollars sitting on a desk that was ready to go for a bank drop. So the person literally came in to kill. When the killings went public, Kelly Sisk came forward. He was in the store about half an hour before this happened with his four-year-old son to make a payment on a go-kart he was going to buy for his son. Sisk noted that there was a black um, that Scott was assisting a customer who was looking at a black Kawasaki Katana 600 bike. Now, when police searched the scene, the bike was in the shop area and it was being prepared for delivery, but there was no bill of sale and no name. Or no name on the bill of sale. KISS gave a description, and as far as anyone could tell, sis was the last one to see to leave this shop alive before the killings. Well, the investigation went nowhere. They had a myriad of suspects, including Lee, who was the first on the scene. And Scott's wife, Melissa. Which, at first, I understand because, you know, the first on the scene and the spouse is always the first suspect. Always. Right. And, it, you yeah. know, a lot of times, they're cleared pretty I soon. get that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, so they were the first suspects, But, the police, unknowingly to Melissa, took a DNA sample of the baby. The results showed that the baby was not Scott but was his business partner's Brian Lucas. What? Melissa was adamant that there was no possible way that that was true. And, actually 18 months after the murders, the Sheriff's Department was informed that the vials containing Brian and Scott's blood had been mislabeled. Melissa's oh, wow. baby was Scott's. That infuriated me when I was reading that because that poor woman already dealing with the loss of her husband and her mother-in-law and probably really close friends because she, I guarantee she was close friends with Brian and Chris also because they all worked with her husband. Already dealing with the loss of those people, but now the entire world, the entire community of people that she knows and trusts thinks that she was sleeping around on her dead husband. You know? And she's like, I wasn't. I wasn't. of course, no one's going to believe her, because what's the first thing a cheater's going to do is say, I didn't (laughs) cheat. It wasn't me. You know? Caught me on the camera. It wasn't me.
1: Yeah. So, I mean,
0: Um, like, and with them saying like, this DNA is is not this is not Scott's baby. And she's like, well, I didn't sleep with Brian, so how did this happen? You know? I just, I can't imagine the, like,
1: the mental... like I'm so anxious to be like, like, did he like, like, did he get me drunk or something? And like, I would convince myself if they were like, it's true, I would convince myself that something had went awry, like, with my husband, yeah, or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. well, at one point she like, was like, the only way that
0: this baby is not, um, is not Scott's is if someone gave me the wrong baby at the hospital. She's like I'm not playing. So yeah, that was a hot mess express and I was so so angry about that. That was so awful to do to Melissa. But, a couple possible, they did a couple um, investigations into drug connections with Chris, who was, you know, like the the newest hire at the shop. But nothing really came up. And honestly, like, if it was something to do with drugs, they would have done more than just kill people. They would have helped themselves to the money or helped themselves to the merchandise because Bikes aren't cheap. So, yeah. So, despite the fact that there were two types of showcasing with the scene, there was no DNA evidence, and the case went cold. Yeah. Now we're going to meet some more people. Kala Victoria Brown was born in Anderson, South Carolina on November 17th, 1985. She had recently begun dating thirty-two year old Charlie Carver, um, who was separated from his wife, and they had moved in together. They both went on the morning of august thirty first to real estate agent Todd Colhep's office to do some work for him. Days go by. And Joanne Shiplet, which is Charlie's mother, was starting to get worried. Her and her son were extremely close and they spoke every day. So, when she couldn't get a hold of him, she started to get really worried. She called the apartment manager where they lived, and the manager went into the apartment but found no sign of Kala or Charlie. Their Pomeranian dog, Romeo, was there without food or water. Kala's mother said, There's no way Kala would have let that happen. She said she would not have left that dog like that. And also, Charlie's white Pontiac was missing. So, Starting on Charlie's Facebook page, there were these weird, cryptic, vague posts that started to appear on his page, saying, like, Charlie was posting these, you know, saying that they were all okay, they were just off by themselves, but Charlie's mother told investigators, like, this is not my son, this is not how my son talks, this is weird, this is not
1: my son. like, okay... You're off by yourself just chilling, but why don't you leave food for the dog or have someone to let the dog out or, or you answer know. your phone calls. You yeah. Know? Like
0: just answer my phone and say, Hey, I'm
1: good. I love you. So send you me safe. a text send me a text if you don't wanna talk. Don't yeah. post on you Facebook. Know, hey, <laughs> I will shoot you a text. I will shoot you a
0: Snapchat video so you see I'm alive. But <laughs> um but despite the fact that the post were uh yeah the Facebook posts um were there no one could get a hold of Charlie or Kala um, by the phone so on October 18th Detective Sergeant Brandon now remember they went missing August 31st it was not until October 18th that Sergeant Brandon Letterman of the Spartanburg County Sheriff got a visit from two detectives from Anderson they had received a tip that Kala was buried on a hundred acre wooded property. The police pinged her cell. Why did you wait till October? And they found.
1: Yeah, that that blows my mind.
0: Well, and also like they were missing August thirty first. What? The only reason they pinged the cell is because two detectives came in and said they got a tip. Like, excuse me, someone's son, someone's daughter is missing hmm i don't they would I, like me, I know that
1: because i would be there every day all the oh yeah, same
0: like i'd have a cot in the back i'd be like yeah. I, I live in the jail cell to you by my child
1: i want to watch you
0: work on yeah. this yeah <laughs> i'm taking notes i'm evaluating you <laughs> but anyway when they pinged it the only property that was that was close to where her cell tower pinged um was todd colehead property. So, with a court order, Letterman obtained Kohlhepp's cell phone records and found that the real estate agent had been in close contact with Kala at the time of her disappearance. And that was enough enough for a search warrant for Kohlhepp's property. Deep in the woods on Kohlhepp's property, the police came upon a 15 by 30 foot green metal connect shipping container three-fourths of a mile from the nearest road. It was secured with five locks, and it took the team 15 minutes for the sledgehammer to break it. Suddenly, someone yelled, Stop! He thought he heard a knocking from inside. Letterman knocked on the wall to hear a faint, Help! through the metal wall. Inside this dark container, they found Paula Brown, fully dressed and wearing glasses, but chained by the neck to the wall and handcuffed. As they cut her loose, Deputy asked, where is Charlie? He shot him. Who shot him? Todd Colehep shot Charlie Carver three times in the chest. Senior Investigator Tom Clark, Anderson Investigator, and Mark Gaddy confront a 300-pound disheveled-looking Todd Colehep with what they had learned. Todd Colehep asked for a lawyer and wanted to call his mom. Deputies found Carver's car stained brown to help camouflage it under tree branches and covered with a pile of brush. On the way to the hospital, Carla told paramedics that had confessed to some murders in a motorcycle shop. Okay, now let's meet some more people. Johnny Joe Coxie Jr. was born May 20th, 1987. He had a son named Jonathan Coxie. And his wife's name was Megan Lee mcgraw Coxey. Both Johnny and Megan had a history of panhandling on local roads to make money. When they were last seen, they were going to clean some properties for Todd Colehead. They had just got out of jail. Johnny had been arrested on December 18th and charged with unauthorized solicitation and giving false information to the police. Megan had been arrested the same day for child neglect. SLED, SLED Records, which I read what that meant, but now I forget. Um, SLED, it's something to do with law enforcement. Showed that they had prior convictions for drug and alcohol offenses dating back to 2009. Kohlhepp announced he was going to close a few cases for the police. Okay, so you've met these people and now Kohlhepp's like, right, I'm going to tell you what happened. He identified the Beretta handgun in the types of ammunition used in the Superbike murders. Details the police never um, released to the public. Now, some people, when I was researching this, some people are like, "This wasn't true. Todd did not do this." Um, they say that this was not his norm. It didn't fit his norm. Um, but he had, but he had other evidence that was standing as part of the Superbike investigation. Letters have been sent out to everyone of the motorcycle shop's customer list asking recipients to contact them if they had any information about what had happened. Most didn't respond, and there were hundreds, so it wasn't a big deal, and you know, Todd didn't stand out, even though he had attempted to return a bike and he was a registered sex offender. Todd also told police during his confession that he would take hunting trips to Juarez
1: Mexico to kill drug dealers. This blows my mind. He's like, "Oh yeah." I, I mean, I know we talked. We we've talked. You know, we've talked about uh, pods, but like me and you before now. But like this, still is one of the things. Besides the the baby thing, you know, misidentifying her baby Sadie. This is one of the things that just. I mean, it makes me snicker, and it it shouldn't, but hey, y'all, like, I know you're, like, getting ready to try me for murder, but while I'm telling you this stuff, I mean, sometimes I just have to go down to Mexico, and I'm like, there's some drug dealers. Yeah. I'm going to kill them. Yeah. What?
0: I know. I know. It's like, <sighs> he that's what he admitted, okay? So, um, Kala and Charles, according to Cohepp, came to work for him, and they were going to be clearing underbrush from trails. As Kohlhepp went inside to get some things, he said he overheard the couple discussing robbing him. So Kohlhepp steps outside and shoots Charlie three times in the chest.
1: Okay. Wow, what an appropriate response. This is why we're talking to our children about how to respond to their feelings.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Like, okay, that escalated quickly. So, Kala stood dumbfounded. He grabbed her and pulled her inside the garage, saying that um, if she didn't go willingly, she was going to join Charlie. He's going to kill her. He handcuffed her behind her back, ankle-cuffed her, and put a ball gag on her. Just had one of those lying around, did you? He was calm the entire time, and about 20 minutes later, he drags her out to see Charlie's body laying in the front loader bucket of a tractor wrapped in a blue tarp. He told Carla he had held another woman, but at some point she pissed him off, so he killed her. For the first two weeks, Cole Hepper kept her chained to the wall of the Connex container, bringing her into the larger building twice a day so she could eat and use the bathroom. Oh, just kidding, so she could eat and do whatever he wanted sexually. He never forced himself on her. Instead, He made sure she understood that if she wasn't
1: useful to him, he would kill her.
0: That's what Kala said.
1: Which is forcing yourself. Like, you're forcing my hands. Maybe like, I I don't have another option. If I don't do what I think you want, you're going to kill me. So you forced me. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Cole Hepper had a complete different rendition of this story. He says the sex was consensual. That she was turned on by Hep killing Charlie. That she had had a fantasy of being his submissive. And Todd had even discussed how often he had rejected her advances. Bought her all kinds of sex toys at her request. And he claims he didn't keep her for sex. But because he didn't know what to do with her, you know. He also stated that he got her clean. But she kept asking for drugs. I looked... I know that um with Megan and Johnny, you know, there was a history of drug and alcohol abuse. I couldn't not not that it's not true and not that it's not out there, but I could not find anything that was like, yes, call it drugs.
1: Well, let me tell you something, as not an addict, if I was being chained up in a metal building forced to have sex or perform sexual Acts on a man who killed my boyfriend and was holding me captive. I would probably ask for some drugs too. <laughs> like give me some crack. I don't. I don't care. What What can you give me?
0: Yep. But anyway, now with Johnny and Megan, he said he met Megan panhandling. Cole Hepp said she was a cute girl begging for money. He offered her a job cleaning houses, and he openly admitted to expecting sex for his job offer. The next morning, though, Megan showed up with Johnny, her husband, to work. Cole says that Johnny pulled a knife on him, attempting to rob him, so he shot him. He put handcuffs on Megan and put her in the metal container and quickly buried Johnny. Now, when he returned to Megan, he said that she kept telling him that she had manic modes, bipolar, lithium, but he ignored her, pushing all that onto her being a drug So, this continued for five to six days. Cole said that he bought her cigarettes and she tried to burn the metal building down. Okay. Not really how that works, but okay. Tom says that he had concocted a plan to get rid of Megan. He was going to give her $4,000 and take her to Tennessee. She was so, he said she was so excited. She, um... Uh, She was like, I'm going to start over. I'm going to fresh. I'm going to have something. Todd said, it's going to work because Megan doesn't know my name or my address. Okay, where did y'all meet? Yeah, wait, what? Where did she come to work at? Okay. But the weather apparently wouldn't cooperate. So with Megan, it's winter and she's inside a metal shipping container. Okay, freezing to death. Freezing to death. Kala was there from August to October in South Carolina, burning to death. Like, dear Jesus. Yeah. So anyway, um, it was fleeting, and then another. Um, after a while, Megan started another fire, so um, Todd decided to put a bullet in the back of her head. So for one thing, um, I know that we talked about this um, you and I did not want to hear earlier about, you know, I feel bad because I feel like Megan was trying to tell him like, I'm bipolar. If I'm not medicated, I will go crazy, you know? And he was just like, you're a drugie, whatever.
1: There's a difference. I'm just slow now, you know, um, And like bipolar, I, I'm not really sure, I'm probably getting it wrong, but like, of course, whatever she had was probably the more serious, like the more um dr- dramatic flips, like because like with me, um you know, first I was like, hey, I have anxiety. And they were like, well, maybe it's anxiety and depression. I'm like well, I'm not sad, but I have bursts of what they would call mania where i'm hyper focused whether it's my house is spotless or i wake up and i'm like hey ty let's go look at new cars today let's buy a new car and then at the drop of a hat it's like i can't get out of bed there are dishes everywhere there are clothes everywhere i think the dog peed in the floor but i'm just gonna lay here and hope to never wake up so I can't imagine someone who's being treated with stuff like lithium is their manic pe- periods or depressive periods not being 20 times worse than that. Plus, maybe she wasn't manic. Maybe she was trying to start a fire because she was freezing to death.
0: <laughs> I mean, that also, like, I also was like, mm, that, like, I don't know. I don't know. But I can't imagine that that was well temperate temperate in there but anyway so yeah he put a gun in the back or put a bullet in the back of her head Cole Hepp also admitted to his first gun crime um one that we never knew about that supposedly happened before he raped his neighbor um he was a teenager and someone tried to kill him Says so as from as um some form of gang initiation the assailant shot Cole Hepp's friend so he emptied a clip in he said when the gun was empty he ran throwing the gun in a dumpster he also told an investigative writer that he had once killed two thugs who tried to accost him in the parking lot of the hunt club apartment complex where he used to live. So one thing that like really just irks me about Todd is for one, I think half of these things that he says are not true. But I think that he he feels like it makes him look not cooler, but like
1: more formidable than instead of you exactly. know with the I kill drug addicts or drug dealers and I kill thugs and gang members maybe more like he feels like maybe if he says this I mean right. no murder is justified but but it's more justified you know what I mean yeah like, exactly or dignified he, dignified yeah but then
0: when it comes to all of the sexual assaults he's like oh no that, like, no, that's not how that happened. They totally wanted me. They threw themselves at me. That's how it happened. And it's like, you know what? No. But it gets better. It's not over. Cole Hep also damned himself with his Amazon reviews. For a chainsaw, he wrote, works excellent. Getting the neighbors to stand still while you chase them with it is hard enough without, ha- without having an easy-to-use chainsaw. On a knife one. Haven't stabbed anyone yet. Yet. But I am keeping the dream alive. And when I do, it will be with a quality tool like this. A folding shovel. See, what creeps me Oh, Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish. A folding shovel. Keep in car for when you have to hide the bodies and you left the full-size shovel at home. And then the last one. A hidden shackle padlock. Works great. Also, if someone talks back, go old school on them by putting this into a sock and beating them. They will not appreciate the hardened steel like you will. Works great on shipping containers.
1: Now, see what freaks me out about this? I mean, of course, now it wouldn't happen because I've heard this story. But if I were to be looking at Amazon reviews, which I do often, like before I buy something, I look at the reviews. So, if I was looking at reviews and I seen this, I would be like, this person's hilarious. You know, like, because what? Yeah. What? Like, well, Because a lot of us, like, have, dark
0: have a morbid <laughs> sense of humor. Like, we laugh at uncomfortable things, you know? You know, we make jokes. I, I don't know. I think it's just a coping mechanism. Maybe not everyone like that.
1: I really think it, it's definitely a coping mechanism. Yeah.
0: So, Yeah. <laughs> Um, but on May 26, 2017, in exchange for avoiding a trial that could have resulted in the death penalty, Todd Colhet pled guilty to seven counts of murder, two counts of kidnapping, one count criminal sexual assault, and four counts of possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. He was sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole plus 60 years. So, um, the last thing that I have to talk about for this is um, I did not mention earlier that why he said that he killed um, the people at the motorbike, you know, Scott, Beverly, Chris, and Brian, um, he felt like they were making fun of me. He felt like they were laughing at him. And so, apparently, that meant they all deserved to die.
1: Oh, if I only killed everyone that ever made fun of me.
0: It would be like Old old West, you know? Yeah. Like just shooting, shooting, shooting. You no, know, mm-hmm. like
1: the purge. That's literally like I the mean, purge. My husband makes fun of me daily. Like, that is our love language. Of- yeah, I mean, if you didn't know us, I mean, you've been around us. You know, well, and my husband
0: and I have a similar relationship where we get with each other and we call each other stupid and uh, um, (laughs) shirk and butthead, and like none of it is meant in a negative way,
1: you know. I mean, yeah, I mean, sometimes like he's getting ready to go to work, and we've talked about before how he's a cop, so he has you know, his job is on the dangerous side sometimes. And my last words to him are like, love you, don't be a douchebag, douchebag, like, yeah. Yeah, it if I if is. I pass
0: if I pass Ligel driving, like if we, we pass each other because of, you know, whatever, I flip him off. <sighs> I'm like, hey, I love you. Here's my bird. <laughs> but yeah. So I don't know. That was wild. He is weird.
1: Yeah. And it was a lot. Like, I mean, there were so many, like, okay, we gotta take a break from him and introduce these other people. Like, yeah.
0: Well, and, like, it, I, and wanted, I wanted to make sure to give the victims, right? You no, know, right, right. they they're due because they are more important than him. He was it, a monster. He was a bad person.
1: They just—it's just, just, it it's just crazy too, because it's not like a you know we've we've done so many serial killers, which I don't know how many kills promote you to serial, but the only thing I know
0: is from Criminal Minds. I'm assuming this is accurate, um, after three murders, they're supposed to um get in touch with the FBI.
1: So, like, he's not like a lot of serial killers, you know. Like, we've talked about a, some big names, um, like the Night Stalker, John Wayne Gacy, BTK, and um, they yeah, like, they did have cooling off periods, but not like that. Like, you know, fourteen years in prison and then a couple great years and then like just random Well and one
0: I, one thing that he did mention in one of the interviews that I was reading about was the fact that um the being on the sex offender registry list really messed up his life. Now that's that's what he said, which first off well, is a crime the, Yeah he if did it the, the consequence of
1: my own actions
0: which I say that to my students all the time when they get mad I'm like who knew your actions had consequences like what but once again we talked about we talked about you know he was 15 not that that makes it okay because it is still a disgusting crime but I don't know I I really don't know I but that's what he said that's what he said and it made him very angry and um, kind of made him resent the world because he was presented with I mean you know how people act to people on the sex registry offender list I wouldn't love someone yeah. on that list anywhere near my children
1: no but like, and I people do there it you know we like there's a lot of addicts that I've heard say we do recover and I think that a lot of times that's I mean sex in particular can be an addiction or oh, yeah. or just something in your mouth that's not working properly i mean like i understand that these people can be rehabilitated does that mean i want them next door to me no because i don't i know how easy it is to slip into something that you've done your whole life and i have children so i mean i wouldn't treat these people with anything other to, than respect to their yeah. face because there's a need for me to do that but do i want you to live in next door to me no
0: well, and I also understand, because I made that comment, I also understand that there are people in the registry um, for public urination, like, they were drunk and they were peeing and, you know, kind of exposed themselves inadvertently. I know that there's some people on there that, you know, they were 18, their girlfriend was 17, their parents, yeah. people cried stressed. Toward... I know some of those, but, like, Todd
1: was on there even for a reason. To me, and people are probably going to disagree with me, there's even a difference. If you were 21 and slept with a 16 year old, not that that's ever okay, but this is a consensual sexual relationship that you had. It's a whole lot different than being on the sex offender list because you were physically attracted to a child. Yeah. I mean, I know you're a child, but you don't physically look like a child anymore. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? There's a line there too. I don't know how to go about that without sounding completely crazy. Listen, well, if and you it's, were ever- it's
0: like he was 15, he was charged with the, with the, um, as an adult with his crime. You know, there's a lot of times that, I mean, we could do an entire podcast on the, um, hypocrisy and double standards of age because 18 what? year olds can go and die for our country, 18 year olds can, um,
1: vote for who runs this country, which is but, a big, big decision that I yeah. don't sometimes, if, to to throw myself on the out there like I was not mentally mature enough and I did vote at 18 but not mentally mature enough to like not listen to what everyone else said and do my own research like exactly my parents were democrat I voted democrat or just because my parents are vice versa even like not attacking democrats or republicans just I was not mentally
0: you were not voting for yourself you were voting for what you were told to vote but it's also like now, you can't drink until you're 21. Go fight for our smoke. country, but you can't smoke tobacco. You can't um chew. You can't um have a vape. My sister is 18. or She's 20 now? She's, she's she going to be 18, 21. She'll be 21. <laughs> no, Oh, my God. She's going to forever be a baby in my brain. But when she was 18, a lot of hotels wouldn't even let her reserve a room because she was 18 you can't rent a car until you're 25. So it's like there's this huge double standard of we're going to give you these responsibilities and say you're an adult and you have adult consequences, but you're not allowed to do these things until you're this adult.
1: Let's not even get into the fact that it doesn't matter apparently from a person who is pretty pro-life. It doesn't apparently even matter what age you are now. The government can tell you you have to have a baby. So yeah, and my favorite
0: not- part of that is that <laughs> Texas is not going to show the amount of deaths that have occurred after they've done this until after the election, because oh, no, I like you are I like for me, I would never have one. That's that is my personal choice. Are there reasons that medically they need to happen?
1: Yes, and and when you start when you start putting laws. You know, like just no, you're not allowed, then there are going to be people that need medically necessary ones that are turned away.
0: Well, and, like- and
1: two, for me, it's um, as a Christian, we live in a free country. I cannot push my beliefs on someone. And still as a Christian, if my 11 year old daughter got raped, absolutely. Her body is not prepared for that oh. and my child the living breathing 11 year old you know comes first yeah. so peeps like this is way too political and we really shouldn't be talking about this i anymore. know i know it
0: just it really bugs me just like you know you have to have your parent your husband's permission to get your tubes tied before so many kids are an age
1: like just
0: yeah
1: and we... the thing is at least my husband knows me well enough to know that if I did have to have his permission for something and he didn't sign it, I would physically assault him. So he better just sign it because it's my body.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, seriously. I mean, like, I had one friend tell me that she had a, an, ep- like, the, the pregnancy where it's, like, on the outside. What is that called?
1: If you have an ectopic pregnancy, it's in your tubes.
0: Yeah. She had an ectopic pregnancy and um she had to have an abortion that's what it was called
1: yes like any term medical ter-
0: terminology
1: yeah it's yeah yeah for sure it is considered an abortion so and there is no way there is no possible medical way that a baby can grow and develop in a fallopian tube and guess what mom's gonna die and baby's gonna, gonna die. Say, like
0: that's going to kill the mother like yeah. that, like that, you will die. Like th- there's no other option. If you continue, you will die. I know, I know, and like, but honestly, if you believe different and you think that you should get a say in women's bodies that's not your own, then get off our our podcast. <laughs> I mean, honestly. because that I just. I don't and, think that to today. From a,
1: from a Christian point of view, you know, there's a lot of Christians out there that are like you can't be a Christian if you're not pro life and I'm not saying that I'm not pro life because I absolutely am. But that includes every child that's in adoption, there that needs adopted and also Jesus didn't say don't love them because they did this. Yeah. He just said love them. Yep. There's no other explanation. Nope. And I'm not a judge of you. Well, yeah, and I'm and, not going to, I don't have to deal with your consequences, whether they're yeah. positive
0: or negative. That's you. <laughs> All right. So we better quit
1: because we're just, yeah, it's been a long we'll day get and we'll get back on petty. Maybe we'll be able to throw one out once or twice every other month. Yeah. And then you can actually tune into our rants.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or like the rants yeah
1: all right well this is katrina this is sydney hey next week we are doing um a really sad story on Skylar nice okay who was actually from Virginia. so
0: be prepared all right i would say i'm excited but you said the sad story so whatever it is
1: as a mother as a human it's sad oh Stay listening prepare yourself
0: stay obsessed stay obsessed prepare <laughs> thyself. I say that to my students all the time and no one thinks I'm funny I'm like prepare myself <laughs> and they're like what I'm like, never mind I think I'm funny <laughs> all right bye guys later